Amen. Amen. Thank you. That's such a wonderful word. Let it be. And it just gives intros to everything. So what a joy it is to be here before you today. And I will be sharing a word with you today. And this word is titled, Careful Words. Now, I'm going to be speaking about words that aren't just filled with, with the emotion of care, but a genuine stewardship of how do we speak and to be careful. There we go. As I was saying to you, careful words. These are not just words filled with emotion, but filled with stewardship, that what comes out of our mouths would be something carefully chosen and carefully spoken. A careful word is speech that is of a true, a true stewardship before the Lord. And I'll be sharing three points with you today that I believe are interlinked, they work together, they come together. And through this message, I pray it would not just be a blessing to you, not just a challenge, but that there would be life. Even as we are called to speak life, I pray that you would be challenged to speak life from this point going forward. Now we, as the pinnacle of God's creation, have been gifted with the ability of speech. There's no other creature that can speak in a language of communication such as human beings. We made in God's image imitate God in that he speaks. And he, in the book of Genesis, spoke so very much into creation. He spoke and it was whether it was fish or earth or sky or stars, he spoke and it came into being. And so us, we have incredible ability to speak, but we do not at times realize the impact of our words or the consequences of what we say. We can be so careless in our words, not realizing that we've loosed something that is not pleasing to the Lord and can be destructive to others as well. So the first point I'd like to share with you, I've titled The Power of Life and Death. And this is taken directly from a proverb in the Old Testament that I'm gonna read to you. For those of you with your Bibles, you're welcome to turn so long to James 3, verse eight to 10. But the, the, the scripture out of Proverbs, I will read to you so long. It says here in Proverbs 18, verse 21, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Those who love it will eat its fruit. There is a consequence to speech. There's fruit from our speech. And it's either going to be the power of life or the power of death. Just because we're Christians, it doesn't mean that we can't speak ill. You know this. I'm sure you know this well out of your own life when these things just slip out or when we say things purposefully. And we know we shouldn't, but we do it anyway. Just because we're Christians, it doesn't mean that we are incapable now of wrong speech or hurtful, harsh speech. But that is what we're gonna be speaking about today. Taking a moment to stop and look at our lives, take responsibility, and ask the Lord to lead us in his paths of righteousness. So, Proverbs 18, verse 21, the power of life and death is in the tongue. James 3, verse eight to 10. But no man can tame the tongue, it is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, 
These things ought not to be so. And here we see a New Testament example of the possibility of a flow of a blessing or a flow of the negative. It is quite astounding to me that we have such capacity to just go with the flow when life happens around with us. And usually our mouths are in agreement with our circumstances. If things are good, we will proclaim, oh, things are good, oh, it's going well. But if things go bad, oh, it's terrible. I, I don't know if I'm gonna make it. I don't know if I'm gonna get out of this thing. And it's almost as if we are at times more in tune with the circumstances and the speech that comes out of our mouth is what's happening around us as opposed to deep calling to deep. And we drawing what we say from a depth in our walk with the Lord, regardless of what is going on around us. So very often we are presented with the choice of what we are gonna do and what we are gonna say. And we are personally responsible for that choice. We, ladies and gentlemen, have been made in the similitude of God. And I wanna refer to this in James 3 verse nine, where it says, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. So not only have we been made in the similitude of God, but the unsaved, the people out there who don't know any better, they are also made in God's image. And this scripture says here specifically that we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Now, I want to put a focus on that because the scripture doesn't say we curse men who are cursing us or us being made in the similitude of God means that we treat people because they're made in God's image, not the way that they treat us. Because we want to bless the potential that's within them to come into the kingdom. We don't want to reinforce the negativity that's already around their lives by cursing them back or speaking ill of them, regardless of how they're treating us, and that's usually not very well. But we should know better because we are tied into the source of sources. We're tied into the king of kings. And it's from him that we draw our strength. So when we deal with people, we shouldn't deal with them according to how they deal with us. We need to deal with them the way Jesus asked us to do so. And this is found in Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Romans 12, verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse. Now these are hard words. Love to an enemy. Blessing to those who curse. Good to those who hate. And praying for those who spitefully use you. Not just use you, but spitefully use you. That's like next level. And yet, that is what Jesus said to us. I'm not telling you this. This isn't my opinion. This is the word of God. Because the Lord came to give life and to lead us into life. But we too need to imitate him in that image and be emissaries of life and speakers of life. We are to react to people out of the mercy we have received from God and not according to how they treat us or what we think they deserve. Jesus himself mimicked this on the cross. He prayed for those who crucified him saying these words in Luke 23, 34, forgive them for they know not what they do. I wanna tell you a hard truth. We are even to forgive those who know what they do. It doesn't make it right. And they, at times they, they, there needs to be a reckoning, but we can't carry around within us the potential to speak death over people and situations. 
Will we speak life when we are surrounded by death, when we are surrounded by adversity, when we are surrounded by challenge? That is where the rubber's gonna meet the tar of the depth of your devotion to the Lord and what he has called you to. So Jesus forgives those who crucified him. Stephen, the first martyr, also walked in the exact same spirit and example. He was a deacon. Now the deacons were appointed to serve the widows in the church and to oversee the distribution of the food. It was a very practical ministry, but he had a gift for speaking. The apostles appointed deacons so they could give themselves to the word. And here comes Stephen, who speaks with just about apostolic authority. He was speaking the most amazing testimony of the Lord and his ways to the point where persecution arose against him and his enemies brought him before the council and he was to give a defense. And in his defense, he gives this most incredible defense in, in Acts 7. I highly encourage you to read it. Where he speaks about the Lord's revelation and the coming of Jesus right from the Old Testament. And then when he finishes his testimony, his persecutors stop their ears, gnash their teeth at him, rush at him, take him out of the city and stone him. In that moment of his stoning, the young men who are participating in this, this terrible sin, this terrible crime, they take their cloaks and they lay it before a young Pharisee of the Pharisees named Saul. In other words, Saul was the overseeing authority of this act, of what was happening and what was going on. It all lay upon his shoulders and he was bearing it as a duty to God in his mind. Stephen, with his dying breath, as he's been stoned, even at the point where his own blood is already flowing, he says this. Then he knelt down, this is Acts 7 verse 60. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Those were his dying words. Now, before I carry on with Stephen, I just wanna go back to the Old Testament, to an incident that happened between Cain and Abel, because it has bearing upon something that happened here with Stephen and Saul. When there were only two brothers on the earth, the one rose up, Cain, and he killed Abel. They brought an offering to the Lord of, Abel had brought a, a sacrifice and, and Cain had brought the work of his hands, his, his crops or what he'd, he'd, he'd um, cultivated. And the Lord accepted Abel's gift and didn't accept Cain's because it was the work of his hands. Abel already had the revelation that there needs to be a substitute. It was a prophecy of Jesus in terms of his sacrifice. But Cain in his jealousy rises up and he murders his brother. Then the Lord confronts him, he initially denies it. But as we know, God sees everything. And this is how the Lord confronts Cain on his sin. In Genesis 4, verse 10 to 12, he says, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. A fugitive and a vagabond. A curse was released because Abel's blood was spilt in an unrighteous, murderous manner. And because that blood was spilt, there was a consequence for Cain. A curse was released over his life for the murder. Now let's move back 
to Stephen and Saul, soon to be Paul. And we see what Stephen did. He released Saul from the curse of his own blood being spilt at Saul's hands. And in that moment where he said, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do, he released Saul from the blood guilt and opened the door of grace that the Lord could appear to Saul on the road to Damascus and call him into his kingdom because he was not at that point answerable for Stephen's blood because Stephen himself had prayed asking the Lord to forgive him. Now there is a lesson in there for us. Many of us have experienced serious unrighteous acts done against us. And I'm not saying be a doormat. I'm not saying allow any kind of criminal activity to take place against you. Please, no. What I am saying is that at times we hold back the grace of God from other people's lives because we are not willing to release them from the sins committed against us. It does require a sacrifice. This is not an easy thing. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will of the Spirit reap life. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. Those whose sins you retain are retained. Those whose sins you release are released. However, if we hold on to other sins, we retain our own sins before the Lord. Better to be a well of life. Better to let your tongue be a well of life. There's one more thing I wanna say about speech in general. A curse, when does it start? When it leaves our lips? I have to tell you, no. It starts, that negativity starts within our hearts. It starts within us. It emanates from within us. James 3 verse six says, the tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. Not the person you're speaking against, James' scriptures here is referring to our own body, that our tongue defiles our body. Matthew 15, 11 says, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. So our speech is actually a heart issue. It's related to what's in our hearts. Praise God, he is the one who can take out a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. But we are the ones who need to ask him to do that. We've got to ask him to come and change us. At one point, the prophet Isaiah is given a vision of the Lord in his temple, and the Lord is high and lifted up, and there's smoke, and the train of his robe fills the temple. And in that moment, Isaiah is so aware of his, his, his faults and the things within him that are wrong, because in the, in the face of God's holiness, it just becomes so prominent. And he cries out and he says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. This is in Isaiah 6. And immediately an angel takes a coal from the altar before the Lord and comes and touches Isaiah's lips. And when he touches his lips, he says this. It's fascinating. He says, your iniquity has been taken away and your sin has been purged. He didn't say, I've cleaned your lips, I've cleaned your speech. You'd think so, when a coal touches your lips, that the significance will be, ah, oh, your tongue has been purified. Yet the Lord, the angel, gives him a word saying that your heart has been ministered to. Your heart has been ministered to. And when that is sorted out, the speech that comes is going to be pure. 
But the Lord is the author and the finisher of our faith. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. We can't clean up our hearts and our tongues, but we can recognize we need the Lord to do so. And then we just pray. We say, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in my heart, that you would change me. Psalm 51 verse six says, for you desire truth in the secret place. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. And so we pray, Lord, give us a revelation of the need for our hearts to be changed before you. Give me truth in the inward part and in the secret place, make me to know wisdom. I guarantee from that point, the power of life and death in your tongue, you're going to be gravitating towards life because that is where you're gonna be investing your time and your prayer and your focus before him. Now, the second point I'd like to share with you is handle with care. It's very much a word on stewardship. My first point is the power of life and death is in the tongue. Make no mistake, words do have consequences. Speak life, ask God to change your heart. But this is not a once-off. This is gonna be a lifestyle. It's gonna be a continuous coming to the Lord. Even as I shared that scripture at the beginning of the service out of Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days. That in the numbering of our days, there is a carefulness with which we live and a handling with care of the words we speak. Now a steward is someone who looks after someone else's property and we were bought with a price. We do not belong to ourselves. So that we can't say to the Lord, I'm gonna keep this part of my life back and the rest you can have. We've gotta give all of our lives to the Lord, which includes our tongues and which includes the stewardship of what we say. I'd like to share a, an example of stewardship with you that is not spiritually based, but I believe it has a deep spiritual lesson for us. And then I will share another biblical example of stewardship. And the example I wanna share with you concerns the Vavilov Institute of Plant Industry. Now, Vavilov might give away that it's Russian, and it is. And I don't know if the institute is still operating today, but it certainly was during the time of the Second World War. This institute is a seed bank. In other words, seeds from around the world and crop seeds from around the world are stored here, like a Noah's Ark kind of situation. And through the storage, they can then help countries to produce crops through cross-breeding. There's no genetic manipulation. It's more like how people would breed dogs. They would use the different crops to be able to survive under more dry conditions or more warm or more wet conditions. And so this was an active seed bank. In other words, the samples were viable. It was operating as it should. There were scientists and, and, and uh, staff in charge of stewardship of the seed bank but it was located in Leningrad. And during the Second World War, Leningrad was surrounded by the Nazis and put under siege. For 880 days, the siege lasted. With the complete cutoff from the world, food began to ran, run out throughout the whole city, which then posed a real temptation to those in charge of the seed bank. What do we do with the storehouse of seed samples that we have? And what they decided to do was not to partake of any of the samples. Nine of their staff and scientists died from starvation, sitting next to thousands of samples of seeds. 
The one in particular, his name is Dmitry Ivanov. He was in charge of, all, of, of rice. And he died with thousands of samples of rice under his care at his desk from starvation because he wasn't willing to steal from future generations and what the storehouse of those seeds actually meant for the people and countries to come for years and decades beyond. I think what an incredible example to us as Christians of the preciousness of the word of God, of the preciousness of the life that he has given us in Christ, that when he redeemed us and he claimed us and he brought us into his kingdom, that we are faithful stewards with that holiness, that we do not speak corrupting words and harsh and, 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 and any kind of thing that would be displeasing to the Lord. The seed bank had 187,000 varieties of plants and 40,000 seed samples of various crops, and they, would not, they were not willing to touch it. They even took 24-hour um, uh, guard rotations against rats and peasants, <laughs> if I can put it like that. But I wanna now give you an example out of the Bible of stewardship that was not administered as it should have been, with immense consequence. And this was actually out of the life of Moses. Moses, being tasked with leading the children of Israel, was leading him in the wilderness, and at one point, the people were thirsty, there was no water for either the people or the livestock, and they cried out against Moses, and cried out against the Lord, and the Lord led Moses, in Exodus 17, to take his staff and strike a rock, and water would flow, which is exactly what happened. He brought the people, he struck the rock, and the water flowed. But a second time arose, not long after that, where the people were thirsty again, and this is in Numbers 20. Exact same scenario, except this time the Lord says to Moses, speak to the rock and the water will flow. But Moses, when he gets to the rock, he first rebukes the people, causing them rebels, and then he strikes the rock twice. And because of that, he dishonored the Lord in that moment, and he was not allowed to enter into the promised land. And we think that's really harsh, it's this one incident. Couldn't the Lord just have forgiven him and he'd go into the promised land? But the truth is, to whom much is given, much will be required, and there was more to this striking, speaking to the rock story than immediately meets the eye. The people of Israel were actually prophetically showing things to come. We read about this in 1 Corinthians 10, where the people passing through the sea is a type of baptism. And when they were under the cloud and the fire, that was a, another kind of baptism. Baptism of water, baptism of the spirit. But also, the rock that they drank from was a picture of Christ. We find this in 1 Corinthians 10 verse four. And all drank this, the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Now Jesus himself even refers to himself as the giver of living water. Judah shared a fantastic example of that earlier. And I even had that in my notes. That when he came to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he said, if you drink of the water that I have to drink, you'll never thirst again. And she said, give me this water always. She was still thinking in physical terms. But he was speaking about the rivers of life that come from him and him alone. Also, 
In John 7, verse 37, it says here, in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And so we see that Jesus proclaims himself as the giver of living water. Now let's put this into perspective of what happened with Moses. He strikes the rock. What is that a picture of? The crucifixion. One strike. Jesus was crucified once for all time, never to be crucified again. Then, the second time, he's supposed to speak to the rock. Because Jesus has been struck, when we pray in Jesus' name, he releases living waters of answered prayer into our lives. Do you get it? So Moses comes, and he strikes the rock twice. And now we see the depth of the disobedience and why there was such a consequence. Because the Lord wanted to minister a a prophecy through the drinking from the rock about Jesus himself. And unfortunately, Moses missed it. But I also think perhaps, just perhaps, he was kind of stuck in a rut. I'm not speaking ill of him, but every single miracle that he performs before this time is physical. He puts his staff into the water and the waters become blood. He stretches his staff over the sea and the seas part. He puts his hand in his, in his coat and he pulls it out and it's leprous and then the opposite again as the sign to Pharaoh. So everything's physical. Now he gets told to speak to the rock. And it just might have been that, that he didn't quite grasp the severity of what the Lord had laid upon him to do in that moment because you're so used to the physical manifestation of miracles. And we have a responsibility ourselves to be careful with our words and to be stewards with our words. I wanna share an example with you briefly of, of Jacob in the Old Testament. Jacob who became Israel, he wrestled with God and his name was changed. But the Old Testament is really serious about words and oaths and promises. And sometimes we would think probably too much. But Jacob is an example of a man who really understood what I call the firstborn blessing. The firstborn blessing. It was a great honor for a father in the Old Testament to pray for his firstborn son, a special prayer of blessing. And With Esau and Jacob, Esau being the eldest brother, Jacob the younger, Isaac, growing old, had come to the point where he was going to give the firstborn blessing to someone, or to to Esau. So he asked Esau to go out, hunt, and bring in his favorite game, and then he'll bless him. Jacob's mother overhears this and prepares Jacob to go in, and he he fools his father. He wears goatskin, so he's hairy like his brother, he smells like his brother, and Isaac is convinced that Jacob is Esau, and he prays this incredible firstborn blessing over, over Jacob. And it speaks of harvest, it speaks of plenty, it speaks of fruitfulness, and it says your brother will serve you. Jacob goes out, Esau comes in, and at that point, Isaac realizes, says that he shook uncontrollably. This is in Genesis 27. Who, and, and this is what he said, he said in Genesis 27 verse 33, then who just served me wild game? I've already eaten it and I blessed him just before you came. And yes, listen to this, that blessing must stand. He didn't say to Esau, I'll cancel that, don't worry, I prayed it over your brother, I'll just pray it over you again. It was like there was such a 
investment in it, that when he had released that blessing, it was done, it was set, it must stand. This, of course, caused immense conflict between Esau and Jacob, and that's where he ran for his life to his uh, uncle Laban. But many years later, the firstborn blessing comes into play again in his life. This time, he is giving it, and not to his own sons, which he did, but to his grandsons, to Joseph's two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. So an occasion comes where he knows his time is drawing near. And Joseph comes with his two sons and presents him to his father. And immediately Jacob does something quite strange. Manasseh is the eldest, Ephraim is the youngest. And he crosses over his hands so that the eldest had his left hand, so Manasseh would have been on my right hand and Ephraim on my left. And Joseph gets offended. He says, no, father. He must have thought, oh, you know, he's confused. Um, He says, Manasseh is the oldest. And Jacob's response is, yes, I know, my son, I know. And then he goes on to say, Manasseh will be a great people, but Ephraim will be the father of, will become a great nation, or part of many nations, the extension of many nations. And then you look at the names and you understand that God had his hand all over this. Because Manasseh means to forget. Joseph named Manasseh, I have forgotten my toil and my father's house. Ephraim means fruitfulness. So what happens here is the firstborn blessing is placed upon fruitfulness, not forget, not toil, not the past. And the principle to us is that God will always make you more fruitful than what you have left behind and what you've needed to forget of the pain and the turmoil and the heartache that you have lived through. Because his fruitfulness will be greater than what you have lost or what you have experienced. And so... I would like to just read two scriptures to you. The first is Ephesians 4 verse 29. It says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Colossians 4 verse 6 says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Fathers, what do you say over your children? Children, what do you say about your parents? Husbands, what do you say about your wives? And wives, what do you say about your husbands? What do we say about our work colleagues and our friends? I pray that there would be a great stewardship within you from this moment, that you would be a speaker and prayer of life, that you could see life coming forth in the lives of others. Now, these two points are leading up to the final point, which is words and warfare, words and warfare. We have a very real enemy. I bring no attention to him in any way, but just as a description, he is unique, he is intelligent, and he comes against the saints. He has his own kingdom, and his name is Satan. And he uses the tactics of fear and intimidation against God's people to great extent. I want to share a scripture with you out of 1 Peter 3 verse eight, which describes the enemy that we have. 
And anyone who's walked with the Lord for a certain amount of time knows that this enemy is real and that he comes against the saints. 1 Peter 3 verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. A roaring lion. You see, a roar is not a bite. It can be a very intimidating sound. Anyone who's heard a lion in real life knows it's a very intimidating sound. But a roar is not a bite. And the enemy tries to use intimidation and fear to, debil to debilitate the saints, to get us out of that place of safety where we feel like we're close to the Lord, we're walking with him. And that is part of his strategy, is to roar and to try and bring fear and intimidation. And that is only gonna get a real grip on us if we ourselves have a discordance within us between life and death and how we're living our lives and where our hearts lie. Are we completely with the Lord or are we partially with the Lord and then partially with other things? Because if that is the case, I guarantee the enemy's roar is gonna rattle you. You're gonna feel incredibly rattled. And so I wanna share with you one instance out of the Bible of where the enemy's roar dealt a mighty blow to one of God's prophets. It wasn't the end, but he certainly got... got a serious blow out of this. And this is the prophet Elijah. Elijah had done many mighty works for the Lord and a time came where he confronted the prophets of Baal. There were 450 of them. And uh, he basically put down a, a, a challenge to them to say, if Baal is God, let him show himself to be God. If the Lord is God, let the Lord demonstrate. And they built two altars and they have a sacrifice on each altar, and the one is the, the prophets of Baal's altar, and they cut themselves, and they wail, and they perform all day, and of course nothing happens. And then Elijah prays for fire to come down from heaven upon the altar that was built to the Lord. And the sacrifice is completely consumed. Not just the sacrifice, but the stones, and the dust, and then of course the water too. And out of the midst of this, the prophets of Baal are then taken and killed, and this cancer in Israel is cut out. Immediately after that, he prays for rain because there'd been a, a drought of more than three years, and the rains come, the drought is broken. Incredible, mighty miracles in God's name. King Ahab, who was an unrighteous king, goes and tells his wife Jezebel what Elijah did, and Jezebel responds, and her response is in 1 Kings 19, verse two to three A. And this is what it says. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. And we think, but why? It wasn't even Jezebel herself, it came through a messenger. And that was the enemy's roar. I think there was a real punch in the spirit against Elijah and it knocked him. But I must tell you something else. Elijah ran from a voice to a voice. Because Jezebel's voice was loosed against him here and he ran for his life and the Lord sent an angel with sustenance that he ate of it and then on the strength of that food that he was given, he ran for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb the mountain of God where the law was given to Moses. He goes into a cave and the Lord reveals himself 
to Elijah. First, there's a wind, then there's an earthquake, then there's a fire, but the Lord's not in any of them. And then it says, then a still, small voice. A still, small voice. He ran from a voice to a voice. But where did he hear the voice? On the mountain of God. Where do we hear the Lord's voice? When we are drawing near to him. Where we presence ourselves close to him on his mountain, walking in his ways, subscribing to his will. That is living your life on the mountain of God in the midst of the valley of the world around us. Because if we stay in the valley, the roar and the bite of the enemy becomes far more intimidating and something to be deeply concerned about. But on the mountain of God is the place of your safety. Now I wanna relate to you another instance of fear and intimidation, an attempt of it, and how it was dealt with effectively as even an example to us. And this is from David and Goliath. And I'm not talking about the sling and the stones, but what happened before that. You see, Goliath had been challenging Israel before David's arrival for 40 days. He'd go out every day and bellow out his fear and his intimidation and his challenge. And this was the reaction his words were having against Saul, the king, and the army of Israel. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This one person, yes, he was imposing physically, but one man, cowed, caused the entire nation to, to, to be intimidated by him, even to the king and the whole army. So David arrives on the scene, and he is indignant. There's this righteous anger that rises up within him. And he can't believe that no one's already taken action. So he, he, he reckons as a 17-year-old youth, ruddy and good-looking, so the Bible says, that he's gonna, he's gonna stand up and be counted. So he makes his case before the king in 1 Samuel 17, verse 6 to 7. And he says, your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He stands up and he makes a declaration, I'm gonna trust in the Lord. So the battle is about to commence and the two combatants come to face each other. And this is how Goliath approaches David. This is essentially his first attack. It's a verbal attack. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 43 to 46, this is what it says. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. There's his challenge. There's the lion's roar, so to speak. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hands. What an amazing proclamation, this youth to this giant 
but he's not relying on the weapons of this world. He's not relying on his own abilities. He's relying on the Lord. And there's just this deep devotion to the Lord as he says this to Goliath. And he steps up and he takes that giant down. Ladies and gentlemen, this strategy hasn't changed. That when the enemy roars, we are to step up in the word of the Lord. Ephesians 6 speaks about the armor of God. And there are five pieces of armor that are purely defensive. Our salvation is a gift given to us, the helmet of salvation. Our breastplate of righteousness is the blood of Jesus, that we are righteous before the Lord by Jesus' sacrifice for us. We have the belt of truth, but that also requires a life of truth. And ties very much into my first point of the tongue speaking life or the tongue speaking death. If we have a tongue that is not submitted to the leading of the Holy Spirit, we are likely gonna be battling to keep that belt of truth on around our waist when the enemy's roar comes against us. And so we then also have the shield of faith with which we quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and finally the shoes of the gospel of peace to proclaim its truth, to walk in the peace that the Lord has given us. But all of that doesn't equip us to fight the enemy. It just helps us to defend and to live righteously. The final piece is to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ephesians 6 verse 10 says, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. And so we overcome the enemy through the blood of the Lamb and the Word of our testimony. That is Revelations 12 verse 11. And He has given us a sword, He's given us His Word, but it's a two-edged sword. Deep course to deep, he desires truth in the inward parts and there's gotta be times where we let his truth penetrate us before we can effectively use his truth against the enemy. And then there's this unity between his word and our lives and there's a confidence and there's a boldness and there's an authority to take authority over the enemy's attacks. And just like David said, I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. But there's this deep peace within you that you are greatly desiring for the Lord to lead you in all of his ways. Amen. So that is my message. And I want to encourage you to open your hearts now. I'm going to pray and just ask the Lord to bless us. Lord, I just pray that you would move upon the hearts of your people. You would encourage. Lord, some people have been beaten down and broken. And they just don't know how to move forward but I pray you would speak words of life to your broken sheep, that you'd minister to them. Lord, I pray that for any of us that need a change in our hearts, that you would take out our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh, that we would honor you and love you in purity, that our tongues would be pure before you, that you take that coal and place it to our lips, but Lord, you are actually placing it to our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would worship you with a pure worship, Lord, that the words that we speak would bring honor and glory to you, as well as blessing men who have been made in your image, praying for them, releasing them, and trusting in you that all will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is our mandate. And Lord, we can't do that if we're not living a life of genuine integrity before you, of a unity between the truth in your word and the truth in our mouths. And so I pray, Lord, bless us today. Move upon us. Help us. Lord, we are who we are by the grace of God. And I pray that your grace would be upon us now.
in Jesus' name. Amen.